Good morning. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. I'll be preaching today. And um, I, uh, I don't normally watch TV shows, uh, but when I do watch TV shows, they are The Mandalorian. Uh, do we have any Mandalorian fans out there? Well, you'll know. Here you go. Call and response. I'm going to say something, and you repeat, this is the way. And you say it back, and it sounds like creepy cultish when we do that, so maybe that was weird to do in a church service. This is some of the point, though, that I'm trying to make here, is uh, there's this show. It's like a Disney spinoff show uh, of kind of a Boba Fett and the whole culture that he comes from, and it's the Mandalorian. It's this whole group of people. It's kind of like a uh, uh, Star Wars Wild West adventure thing. Um, and so I have no idea why this is the fascinating one for me. Like, literally, no other shows um, ever do I ever watch all of them, but this one's some for some reason. I'm in, and I'm in. And it's strange. Uh, and so this, this group, the Mandalorian, they, uh, they all wear these you know, suits of armor or whatever. The big thing is they wear these helmets. Uh, they wear these helmets, and you can't take the helmet off. That's part of, like, the code that's there. And, and it seems really great. You know, when they wear these helmets, it's, like, super cool for costuming, and they look, like, super, uh, you know, strong and, and, and mean and all that kind of stuff. It's great. Uh, but also, uh, when they say this is the way, whenever they do, it means, like, a few different things. Mainly what it's meaning is, like, this, there's only one way to do this. This is how we've always done this. This is the tried and true way. There are no exceptions. And you can almost hear as this goes on over the seasons, this refrain happens, this is the way, uh, is, um, is this idea that they just don't think about it. Like there is no, it's not okay to question why this is the way. You even find out that there are a couple of uh, other people that have been Mandalorians. They've taken their helmets off, which means that you no longer are a Mandalorian. You're rejecting your Mandalorian faith or something. And so you're no longer that. And uh, these other non-Mandalorians or ex-Mandalorians come in with no helmets on, and people are like, what are you doing? You can't do this thing. And they're kind of trying to, like, ask the questions, like, what, why do you do that? Why is that? And, and the Mandalorians say, you know, whatever, this is the way. That's, that's it. Um, we kind of are that way sometimes with our own faith. Uh, you know, maybe we're not, you know, Star Wars Mandalorian, but um, we get that way. We, we, we've gone through something. We've experienced something so meaningful. We've really thought through a thought so much that we kind of, rather than say this is an aspect of the gospel and, and, and how it is meaningful in the moment, we sometimes just get stuck in our ways and, uh, and we just say, no, this is the way. This is it. This is, this is all there is. Now, there are good and right things of orthodoxy of our, of our faith uh, that we do need to cling to. Sin is real. Uh, we have sin. We are sinners. Jesus forgives that sin, but there are sometimes within the, the way we have experienced it that we get stuck into that. And so even, uh, even uh, when we get asked questions about things, we don't think too much about Jesus and our faith. We just give them the way uh, that we've always done it. Um, that's kind of what's happening here in John 8. It seems like this Jewish crowd is saying uh, something similar to this is the way. It's, uh, we're the sons of Abraham. You know, who's your father? Our father's Abraham. Our father's Abraham. We're good. We got good church attendance. We got a good, you know, lineages. You know, we've come from a long tradition of, of, of Christians or, or those who believe. So, of course, we're good. Of course, we're in. We've done all the right things. We followed all the rules. And so, this is the way. We are the sons of Abraham. It seems like these people can't even reconcile or think about whether or not this is the right way to do things when they're standing in conversation with the Messiah, whom their forefather Abraham believed would be coming. We're going to learn about that today. And so in this passage, 
we are invited to consider one of those times when we make God meet our expectations, our timelines, our, uh, our, our events and how they play out while all the while remaining unchanged. We may not do this at the point of saying Jesus is the Messiah, but we may, uh, we may do that in subtle ways each and every day. The remedy that we find here, verse 51, is to keep his word. What is Jesus actually saying? What is the message? What is the gospel that's there? Keep that forefront. And so as we work through the end of, uh, the end of uh, chapter 8 here, uh, we're just going to ask this question, why keep Jesus' word? Why keep Jesus' word? That'll be our outline. Is just going to be three answers to why should we keep Jesus' word. If it's pretty simple to get there, he says, keep my word for eternal life. Let's figure out why do we do this. Now, the context of where we're at right now is at the end of chapter 8. Um, since, I don't know, more or less the whole book of John is this way, but since chapter 5, there's been this rising opposition to, to Jesus. They just keep getting nastier and nastier and, and more questions and slanderous ones, and today we're going to get even more of that. Um, so they're, they're really questioning, who is this guy, Jesus? Uh, specifically speaking, in chapters 7 and 8 in the book of John, we're in uh, a week-long feast called the Feast of Booze or the Feast of of uh, tabernacles and this is a um this is a feast where they're remembering god's provision in the wilderness wandering um with things like bread and light and water and uh and uh and this guidance that he gave them and so he's been teaching jesus has been teaching in the temple that's kind of where we're at we see at the end of this uh this passage here verse 59 jesus is going to leave the temple and so that's kind of the end of our chapter that's where we're at within the context of scripture chapter 9 we're going to be on to a new thing uh, going, uh, going there. Just a new event that takes place there. So why do we keep Jesus's word? Well, our first point is going to be in verses 48 through 51. We keep Jesus's word because Jesus's words give life. Jesus's words give life. I mean, he says it here. If you keep my words, you will never see death. So Jesus, uh, so the Jewish crowd, sorry, the Jewish crowd in John 8, they've been making their, uh, their comments to Jesus increasingly personal and petty. Uh, we read back, if you want to go check back in at verse 41, they uh, called the question, uh, Jesus' earthly biological father, um, in kind of a, a rude way there. Uh, but they're not done. They now take this uh, and he increase it, uh, their offensiveness, by supposing that Jesus is maybe an illegitimate child of a Samaritan. That's really great. That's a nice job, guys. Get really in the gutter there. Um, the, uh, and, then, uh, and then even more petty than that, they, they don't say, um, are you an illegitimate child of a Samaritan or do you have a demon? They just like bundle it all together in one package with, uh, with and. Are you an illegitimate child and also have a demon? I mean, this is what they're saying to the Lord God there. And I love how they do it. It just reads, my ESV uh, version of the Bible, it reads in just like the most like kind, gentlemanly, you know, posturing question. Are we not right to say you, you are a Samaritan and have a demon? I mean, that's just such a wonderful way to just like start a fight. Uh, really, what I'm thinking at this point as I'm reading this is like, it's time to, it's time to start smiting people, God. Like, it's, like what, do you, what do you do when you, when you call the Son of God you know, an illegitimate child and, 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 and demon-possessed. I mean, I don't know where you go after that. Um, but fortunately for us, for them and for us, uh, smiting doesn't happen at this point. Um, and, uh, but Jesus doesn't stoop to their baseness or entertaining their argument. He, he takes kind of the concept of what they're, where they're missing it, and he really takes us into a further, deeper glory 
of who he is and how he works and who the father is. I mean, he simply says, I, I don't have a demon. My father is worthy of honor. You dishonor his son, which ultimately then dishonors him. And, and so we've got a real problem here. And then he goes on to say kind of his point. He dismisses that. He, you know, his little rebuttal there. Then he moves on. Here's the point that we're saying. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. I mean, that's a big point that he's making. I mean, he's been trying to tell them something this entire chapter, and he keeps saying things over and over again, and they keep not getting it. And it's really helpful because they act a whole lot like you and I do in hearing simple things about God, but our stubborn hearts just don't want to take it. So we spin it one way or the other and try to make him meet our expectations rather than just surrender and change the way we are, the way we think, and the way we view the world. Jesus has already said this statement uh, with a little bit you know, more clarity or expanding on it a bit. It's over in John 5, 24. And so this is more of just a reminder of what Jesus has already been teaching. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. That's basically what he's saying here. A little bit more there, Bo. Uh, he does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And I think that's a great, a great thing to say is, you know, in John 8, he's saying, if you, if you uh, keep my word, you will, you will have life or you will not see death. Uh, here in John 5, he's saying, y'all are dead. Like, listen to my word and, and believe in the Father and, and then you'll be alive. Uh, and, uh, and I think that's a pretty helpful uh, distinction there. Maybe in one way he's saying, stop trying to fit my word into your paradigm. Stop trying to be explaining the entire world by your Christian experience or your Christian, uh, your, 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 your whatever argument won you to Christ. Stop trying to fit, make everything fit that. There's more to learn. There's more about me. Expand your view of God by keeping my word. Start with the word and then change your mind and then change your action, not the other way around. But they, like us, uh, don't choose to go that direction. They, they keep going the wrong way. Uh, so our second point is, uh, why do we keep Jesus' word? The first is, Jesus' word gives life. And the second is, Jesus' words are true. I mean, that's the big concept of this, uh, this section here, uh, verses 52 and 56. But that's not exactly how the, the plot of the story goes. Instead, we get them uh, saying, uh, where is this? Uh, are you greater than our father, uh, Abraham, who died, and the prophets who died? I mean, to them, they're looking at Jesus, and they're saying, wait, 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 wait. Abraham was the greatest of all time. The only thing that could possibly have made Abraham any better, immortality. There's nothing wrong with I mean, that's just, that's just intense. I mean, these guys really uh, highly regard him. And they say, and then we'll throw in the prophets. Like, we're putting the dream team together. We keep them alive. That's the only possible way that they could be better. Are you saying that's you? You are better than that because you will never die. Is that where you're going? You must be, you must be possessed by a demon. You must be crazy. Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus speaks to them. Again, mercifully, patiently speaking to their tangential slights before then he will advance his point even further. He says something like, I'm not trying to make myself out to be anything more than what I am. I'm simply keeping and speaking the words of my father. I mean, just very plainly, I, I, Jesus could have said something terse. He's done that before, but here he just explains, I'm, I'm just doing 
what my father has told me to do. My father is the God of Abraham, the one in whom you all say is our God. And my self-glorification, it means nothing. In fact, it wouldn't be true if I was doing this for my own glory. Um, because that's not the message of the good news that I was sent to proclaim. My message is not that I'm really great. My message is that you can be saved through faith in me. And so while I don't seek my own glory, there is one who does, and it's the guy who you say is your God. I keep his word. I keep his word because I know his word. And I know his word because I know him. And even more than this, this is just me paraphrasing what, what Jesus is saying here. And he says, even more than these, you, you, y'all are showing me that with your stubbornness that you either don't understand his word or, or you don't know him or maybe both. I think it's a great explanation of what's going on here. Either they don't get it or they don't want to get it. They don't know God. They are all they are saying is this is the way. And you're talking crazy. This is the way. We are the sons of Abraham. We are sons of Abraham. We go to church. We've been to church. How dare you change this? And Jesus makes a statement here. As he returns to his argument, the clearest argument. This is his main point. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. So you also should be glad at my, that my day has come. That's what it says right there. No, that would have been the easy thing to preach. But that's why I get this task here. So what does he mean there at that last sentence he says? He says, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit on first blush kind of with the Jewish crowd here. And they're like, wait, you're crazy, man. Like, this is, you're not 50 years old and you saw a guy that's 2,000 years dead. Like, this is kind of weird. What is he saying? And before we pass over those things as Bible readers, we should probably wrestle with them a bit. And so we're going to wrestle with that for the next couple, couple of minutes here. What does, what does Jesus mean when he's telling the people, as he's advancing his understanding and revealing himself to these people increasingly clearly and pointedly and concisely, what on earth does Jesus er, mean when he says that Abraham saw his day and was glad? Well, we're going to take a little bit of a tour here through some of the Bible to try and understand this. We've got four stopping points. Um, to answer this, we're going we're gonna to start with something very basic. It's going to take us pretty high and lofty, and then we'll land here in today. The first basic thing is that Abraham knew stuff. The Bible tells us that Abraham knew stuff. He knew a lot of things, and maybe some stuff we didn't remember or know that he knew. One of those is that the gospel was actually preached to Abraham. The Bible tells us this. The, the gospel was preached to Abraham through the promise. This is Galatians 3. Galatians 3, verses 7 through 9 are wonderful. It reads, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. All right, there it is, the sons of Abraham. Who are the sons of Abraham? It's not these people who are walking around saying they're the sons of Abraham. I mean, biologically, through their lineage and ancestry, they are the sons of Abraham. However, it's saying there are more. Those of faith, the ones who believe, are the sons of of Abraham. And now we're going to get into verse 8, which is a treat. Uh, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Well, that's something. Uh, okay, so what do we find? We have the scripture is foreseen. So this scripture, this word, 
is not just a lifeless word, is not a lifeless scripture. This has the ability to do things. Most objects don't have the ability to do things on their own, but this scripture has the ability to do something, and it does one of the things, is foresees. This word can foresee events that will happen. This might not be the written word we're talking about. We might be talking about something a little bit more than that word. The word, the scripture, foresees, what does it foresee? That God would justify the Gentiles by faith. The Gentiles, the not sons of Abraham, biologically speaking. Those of many of us are those Gentiles. The people like us who can't go on to Ancestry.com and find Abraham, we are the ones who are justified. Justified means to be made right before God. We are justified and made right before God. How? That verse says, by faith. And scripture could foresee that God would do this. I mean, this is getting a little bit crazy. And then we go on and we say, okay, this is great. Uh, what, did it, what did it do? The scripture that could foresee then didn't just sit there foreseeing. The scripture did something. It then preached. What every good word does is it preached. It proclaimed the gospel, the good news of faith in Jesus Christ beforehand to Abraham. Somehow the word was able to tell Abraham the good news. The good news of faith, of forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus Christ. How does this work? What were the words of that gospel message saying the rest of that verse? In you shall all nations be blessed. This is the promise that we hear God make to Abraham in that covenant in Genesis 12 and then again in Genesis 17. I will make you great and you will be blessed. I will make you uh, the father of, of many nations and they will be a blessing to all the earth. And we will, we will dwell, you will, have, uh, you will be blessed, you will be uh, in a place with me. I mean, this is all part of God's big plan there. And this is how Abraham understood this plan, this promise to be that gospel. Verse 9, so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham. There we go. There's the blessing that Abraham was promised through faith, the man of faith. So what is the faith of Abraham would be a great question. This is our second stop here. We're going to go over to uh, Romans 4. Uh, our, our pastor brother um, Steve read us this, so I'm going to do a, a rendition of this from the message version, which is, uh, which is sometimes helpful for summarizing uh, the Bible here. The faith of Abraham was that he, fully con was, he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Here's what the message version reads in explaining the faith of Abraham. Uh, verse 18 when everything was hopeless, Abraham believed anyway. That's so great. When everything was hopeless, Abraham believed anyway, deciding not to live on the basis of what he saw he couldn't do, but on what God said he would do. That's a pretty good walking definition of faith. Believing not on the basis of what you can't do, but on the basis of what God said he would do. It goes on then to read and, and gives us this example of this promise. Uh, Abraham didn't focus on his, you know, on his own impotence, saying, it's hopeless, this hundred-year-old body could never father a child. Nor did he survey Sarah's decades of infertility and give up. He didn't tiptoe around God's promise, asking cautiously skeptical questions. Rather, he plunged into the promise. That's so great. He plunged into the promise. 
and came up strong, ready for God, sure that God would make good on what he had said. He was sure that God would make good on what he had said. Uh, maybe your Bible, uh, if it's an ESV Bible, read the definition of faith, uh, Romans 4, 21, that same way. Faith is being fully convinced that God is able to do what he has promised. And I'd add, in any way or in any time that he chooses. This faith is the faith of Abraham. This faith is not the faith of those in chapter 8 of John who are calling themselves the sons of Abraham. They are asking cautiously skeptical questions. They are not plunging themselves into the promise. So, I'm aware of where we're at in uh, answering this question. We haven't answered the question. <laughs> uh, we simply laid the foundation for the question, and now we are ready to hear the gospel preached to Abraham, the faith that Abraham had, and now we can go to Hebrews 11 because that will actually give us our answer. How on earth did Abraham see the day of Jesus? Hebrews 11, 8 will say something like Abraham saw and greeted the fulfillment of God's promises from afar. Let's read it here. Uh, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place that he was to receive as an inheritance. He went out, not knowing where he was going, because he had that confident faith. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. These men all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen, there it is, having seen them and greeted them from afar. And I would add, if you greet something from afar, you are greeting potentially with gladness. Having seen them and greeted them from afar. Now, before I get to the big point here, because there's, we're getting to this huge reveal of the gospel, I got to ask, as a Bible reader, why did Abraham see Christ's day from afar? I would have loved it if like, he would have just like, got it then. You know, why, why not just wrap it all up? Back there with Abraham, back in Genesis 12. I mean, the, the Bible would be about that big <laughs> instead of that big. And, uh, and it would have been easier to read, but it would have been something less. I mean, it would have read like creation, things are good, rebellion, there's a curse, flood, Babel, Abraham, done. That's faster. Why all the rest of it? The last two verses of Hebrews 11 explain why in glorious fashion. Hebrews 39, or 11, 39 through 40. And all these, all of these people, it gives a whole list of people that had faith, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since, that's logically, since, here's the reason, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. What are we talking about here? What is this thing that Abraham saw? What is that something better for us? It's Jesus Christ. It was not sufficient for the family tree of Abraham to go claim world domination with the prophets and clean everything up to make it seem like a great society centered around God. I mean, the best that they could do, and there were attempts, I think the Maccabees tried something like this, that didn't go so well, 
Uh, the, but, but if they would have taken this back and they would have fought, the best that the family of Abraham could have done, humanly speaking, with these human terms, is they could have conquered all of the human problems in the world. They could have established something like the Roman peace, the Pax Romana, uh, Romana which is like forced peace. It's not real peace, it's forced peace. And, uh, and we could have got all the way there, but they would have been right on the doorstep of Genesis 3. They could never have actually world domination away the curse, right? But we see that back in Genesis 3, God already called the gospel shot. The gospel that there would be one to take us all the way back to goodness with God. Abraham gets this and it says, your offspring will be a blessing to the nation. That offspring is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, as we read through the, the first chapters of, of Genesis, Jesus Christ is not simply the one who is the authority, who is the king of kings and dominion over all things. Jesus Christ is the one we need to get back to the garden. He is the promised serpent crusher. He crushes the snake and has victory over Satan himself. Therefore, we can, the end of the book, Romans, uh, or not Romans, Revelation says we go back into this garden-like place with God. This is what Hebrews is talking about. Abraham knew that there was a promise. When his son was born, he knew that God was doing what God said he would do. But he didn't see it fully accomplished because God didn't keep him alive forever. God sent Jesus. And that was the something better for us that now Abraham back then had the faith and confidence that now we can have that faith and confidence in Jesus Christ because the promise made to Abraham is becoming true. This is wonderful. To answer our question, how did Abraham see Jesus' day from afar? He saw the fulfillment of God's promise. And he was committed to it with a confident faith. An exemplary faith, a faith that they don't have and oftentimes we don't have. A faith that God will do his work on his time in his way. But we're kind of like those scoffers. And that's where the next verses take us, 57 through 59. Why keep Jesus' word? Because his words are the very words of God. Seems that uh, seems to me Jesus has been patient enough. You know, the people respond. You know, he gives this, this wonderful idea, and they respond like, oh, you're crazy, man. <laughs> you're crazy. How are you, how are you that old? That doesn't make any sense. Jesus has been patient with them. He's been merciful throughout this hostile exchange. Yes, he's been terse when needed, which is often, but he's, uh, he's patient and merciful. And now he's done with their arguments. He's done with their rabbit trails. He wants to stick to the point. He wants to clarify the point. It seems to me that it's not a lack of patience, that Jesus is just losing his patience and, and just, you know, blowing his lid here. Um, but rather, it's a, an urgency, an increasing urgency, a pressing urgency that moves him to his biggest and clearest point of the entire conversation. It's as though I feel like in his, in his, in his statement here, in verse 58, that he's like sliding Abraham out of the conversation. He's like, enough with this, this is the way stuff. Enough of this, this, this sons of Abraham stuff. Enough with this, but I'm a good Christian and I do these things and my parents did these things and we've gone to church and we have great attendance and, and, and we're in all of these different things. Enough with all of that. Like the point is me and he says, you know, be, uh, before Abraham, he like slides it out. Before Abraham, here's the point, I am. And when he says, I am, He's saying something huge. He's not misspeaking. 
He is making the clearest statement of his eternal identity. I mean, if we read this and it said, when Abraham was, I was, uh, Jesus is basically saying something dumb like, uh, like, I'm really old, guys. You know, when he was there, I was there. Yeah, 2,500 years old. Um, that's not what he's saying. I, but if it reads, before Abraham was, I was, uh, then he's saying something like, I'm really, really old. I was before him, so I'm, I'm even older. But actually, I don't want to like be in, in, in jokes there. Uh, that's actually a position, what I, what I just read is the before Abraham was, I was. That's the position of Jehovah's Witnesses. I mean, they, they say he's the firstborn because he's the first created being. And so and Jesus isn't saying that. You know, this, it, to think that Jesus was just simply before all of these others and that's why he has authority, that he was created for Jesus to be a created being gets us down some really weird theology and, and, and really weird practice. And we never come to him truly as that savior. And, and it, Jehovah's Witness take that stance. But it's not what the Bible says. Because it reads, before Abraham was, I am. I am is the very name of the Lord, of Yahweh, the God of Abraham. Let's look back at Exodus 3, where we hear this name. We read, now Moses led his flock, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame uh, of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And then we jump ahead there. I'm skipping a few verses there. Basically, God says, Moses, you're going to lead my people out of Egypt. And then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers, that's Abraham, has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall, you, what shall I say to them? See, God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. When Jesus says, I am in the temple with these people, he is saying what Psalm 90 says, I am everlasting to everlasting. I exist before creation. I am the Lord, Yahweh, I am. I am the creator of the heavens and the earth. I am the sovereign over all things. Romans 4, 17, I give life to the dead and I call into existence the things that do not exist. I give life because I am life. That's what Jesus is saying right here. And that's wonderful. And that's not just a preacher wanting to get really excited about I am statement there. It's because verse 59 says the people got it. They didn't believe in him, but they understood what he was saying because they, following this is the way, uh, Leviticus 24 says, you stone to death anyone who says they're God. So they pick up stones. They get what he's saying. He's making a big claim. In the wilderness of this life, the Feast of Booths puts us there. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Jesus says, I am the source of the living waters. Jesus says, I am the guiding light that you are to follow. And here, he now says, I am the I am in the pillar of fire. I'm that guy. Have confidence, Christians. This is our Lord. This is the one we worship. It's going to take intelligent, faithful Christians some 300 years 
of conversation and counsels to clarify uh, a somewhat helpful concept of the Trinity. Jesus has just started that conversation here. But we don't have to wait 300 years. John had already given his readers a backdrop of this in chapter 1. I'd encourage you to read that again, thinking of God, who is Jesus, who is God. Uh, John 1, specifically the verses 1, uh, 4, or 14, 18, something like that. They say something like, uh, Jesus, who was with God in the beginning, is God, and he is called the Word, the Word, the Scripture, the one who foresees, the one who proclaims the gospel to Abraham. This eternal word of God was sent into the world in the person of Jesus with a message of good news. Believe the forgiveness of sins for eternal life. This good news is a fulfillment of the gospel preached to Abraham that the world would be truly blessed through the faith of Jesus Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ, who is the incarnate, the enfleshed, the embodied word. Here in John 8, the one who is the incarnate word says, keep my word and you shall not taste death. It's a beautiful text. Here are a couple of uh, potential uh, reflections or applications because uh, the big question is, what are we supposed to do from this? Well, we keep his word. The sermon here over these last three points is, is the answer to the question, why keep his word? And I want to maybe as we think about leaving here today, um, how do we keep his word is, a, is, our, is our question. Keep the words of Jesus because Jesus' words are true words of the I am that give eternal life. So maybe one, uh, one practical application would be to follow his word in faith and obedience. We've already said faith is being fully convinced that God is able to do what he has promised in any way or time that he chooses. I mean, this is the faith of Abraham that we're to, uh, to follow we don't call the shots. We can't predict how the events will happen. We can't even predict what events will happen. And maybe, like Abraham, we should, uh, we should change our posture to prepare to greet the fulfillment of God's promises from a distance. I don't know if you're, if you're like me, but there have been times where I've thought, surely the Lord will return before I die. I mean, I, I hope, I pray for it, you know, because golly, that's going to be great. <laughs> But there is something that changes in the way you read scripture and the way you talk about Jesus and the gospel and the way you live your life. If you prepare yourself to maybe you're going to live a life that's going to be good and bad. And then you die and you never saw Jesus come. Like that's a different kind of thing. And it will change you if you, if you think that. It gives you some enduring hardiness. It gives you a clinging to Christ in a way you might not if you're just waiting for the big show, in a couple of years. And the Christians in the Dark Ages, they didn't see the glory that the Reformation would bring about to, to dust off some of this stuff and say, no, 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 it's faith in Jesus alone. But even the Reformers, they didn't see the coming of Christ. So maybe we won't. I don't know. Follow his word with faith and obedience. I love completing tasks. If you're like me, there's something just wonderful about checking the box. Like you put the check in the box. Oh, it's fantastic. Um, if you're not like me, please pray for us. We get anxious when the boxes aren't checked. Um, we, uh, we never get called. Uh, so I've, I've gone over the Bible so many times, and, and, and I can't find anywhere where we're called to be anything like project managers. 
or decision makers. I find the opposite. Uh, what I do find when I look for, like, what am I described as, you know, here as I follow Christ is uh, these words, servants, stewards, ambassadors. Those aren't decision makers. And even more, they're measured. How are they measured? By faithfulness. We just steward the thing we're given. Follow his word in faith and obedience. Maybe another way to keep his word is to buy, abide in his word by abiding in Jesus. And this one's kind of slick, cyclical. You learn to abide in Jesus more as you abide in his word, as you read scripture, and then that helps you to abide in Jesus more, which then helps you to abide in his word more. And when we look into his word, we find that the I am is all-powerful. And that helps us because we worry. We're finite. And we can hang our worries on one who is infinite. Scripture tells us that the I am, Jesus Christ, is all-knowing. He knows you more intimately than you know yourself. He's Jesus. He says all over Scripture something like, I'm madly in love with you. You are something wonderful. And we need to hear that. Because the devil tells us quite the opposite. We find all over Scripture that the I am is ever-present. I mean, Jesus says, uh, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. And then after Jesus ascends to heaven, he says, I am with you, not today, but until the end of the age. You're never alone. People will fail you. Your expectations will fail you. You'll get things wrong because you're human and you're not God. But Jesus says, I will be with you. But he's not just a guy to come alongside you just to make you feel better all the time when you feel down. He also calls you to something. He says, I am holy. So be holy. And I know that you can't get this on your own, so I'm going to send a Holy Spirit to help clean you up. What a wonderful thing this is. In trials and triumphs, run to Christ. Cleave to him. Abide in him. Abide in his word. He is everything he says he is. The last one here. Kind of takes us to uh, to our text here a, a bit more with these uh, with these Jewish scoffers is maybe guard his word by always making Jesus the point and pattern of your faith. Resist the error of these Jewish scoffers. They refuse to accept Jesus because he doesn't fit their their tradition, their culture, or their experience. I've already likened him to the, the, the Mandalorian. This is the way. This is the way. Nothing can come in. Nothing can change. This is the way. We do that. Maybe a helpful phrase is to think of the gospel as both timeless and timely. There's timeless truths of the gospel. Sin is real. We are sinners. We need uh, forgiveness of sin through faith in Christ. Those things transcend any age and any generation and any circumstance. But then there's this timely part of it. The culture that you, you're in or you came to Christ in, the, 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 the way the argument was presented to you, the way Christ was presented to you, the parts of the, the scripture that you read, it's a very timely to the person kind of a thing, maybe a timely to the culture kind of a thing. And that worked for you, praise God. But it might not be the, uh, the, the thing that works for everyone. Maybe a better way to say this is the timeless truths of God are the gospel. And they at times are put into very timely contextualized ways. Let me get this here all the way down at the ground level for us. Maybe there, there, there's some of you who have lived uh, in this room, who have lived most of your lives in the United States before the year 2000. 
So doing quick math, it's like you're, you're over 46. Um, you're, uh, you're generally experienced uh, in cultural Christianity. I mean, the things like this were, were normal for you. Uh, Billy Graham and uh, uh, prayer in schools, businesses closed on Sundays. Uh, presidents who, uh, who said they were Christians and we believed them because they like said and did things that Christians do. Uh, that was a great thing. Uh, and, then, uh, and then maybe being part of a, of a thing called a moral majority. I mean, that word majority is really great. Uh, the majority, the most of us, right? Those are all really good things. Those are all wonderful things. Praise God that the gospel was being, the timeless gospel was timely applied in those kinds of contexts. However, they're not the gospel. They're a way to communicate and apply the timeless gospels in a given place, in a given time. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay there. I'm going to go speak to those of us who lived in the U.S. after the year 2000 because we can fall into a big ditch here. This is me. This is any of us who are under, uh, under 46. Uh, we can fall into the ditch of, of, of always using the argument, things are different now, right? Well, things are different. Times have changed. And we had, uh, we had uh, 9-11. We had the, the social media, the smartphones. That's just changed, I mean, just what humans think they are. It's just huge. But we can fall into this ditch. The argument of things are different now and keep the timely word of our age forsaking the timelessness and the truth of the gospel. We can get tossed aside by our culture if we always think that we just have to be cutting edge, speaking to the current hot, hot button issue. Now, what does this mean for both of us? We have a timeless truth. Those of us who are young, we live and breathe the culture here. We live and breathe the, the, and speak the language. Part of being a missionary is your first step is to learn the language. You know the language. And so I don't know if you ever thought of yourself just growing up as, as a youngster. You're like the missionary to our culture now. Like you get it in a way that those born before 2000 don't. Um, so go out and speak the gospel. However, those of you who have lived most of your life in the 1900s, you've had some time to test what lasts and what doesn't, what burns and what doesn't, what the timeless gospel is. We need you to speak that into us and help us to be anchored in something. And maybe we can offer to you uh, some of the crazy new ways that culture lives and exists and speaks and the way arguments are made and understood and what might be a, 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 a plausible understanding of, of, of the gospel, the hurts, the pains, the fears of, of, of the young people today because we all want people to come to Christ, right? We're not defending our religion. We're carrying the message. We're keeping the word of God as he keeps the word of his father. I mean, this is, this is Jesus' message for us. By keeping Jesus at the point and the pattern of your life and faith, you and I maybe resist the error of the Jewish scoffers who go around God's promises asking cautiously skeptical questions. Why can't we just go back to the way it was? Or this new way seems really great and never test whether it's good. All of this gets us simply to this idea that we are to keep the words of Jesus, and we keep them because Jesus' words are true words. They are the words of, of, of God himself, the great I am, and they give eternal life. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the word. Thank you for Jesus Christ, the eternal and incarnate word. 
Thank you that through him, we hear an accurate representation of you. Thank you that through him, it challenges our finite, small, selfish, prideful, judgmental understanding of how the world should work and when it should work and how it should work. By your spirit, I pray that you would convict us to put the Bible first and to map our understanding around it. And from that, then to move out of conviction. I pray that you uh, help us to, to rethink the way in which we approach Jesus. We allow him to change things for the good. But also, that by your spirit, you give us a good kick in the butt to go do things. We could sit here forever thinking about Jesus. And that's nice. But you've called us to go out and make disciples of all nations. And give us that courage. Give us that, uh, give us that conversation. Give us that, uh, give us that conviction that we're not doing what you told us to do when we don't share the gospel. And help us along the way. Always pointing to Christ to point the pattern of our faith. Thank you for Jesus, the I am, the fire and the cloud to guide us through this wilderness. In Jesus' name, amen.